when I was a little kid, maybe six or seven years old, I was at my friend Corey's house, who was just down the street from me. I can't remember what set off our little tussle, but I know it ended with Corey punching me. I ran home. Through tears, I, I told my mother what had happened. She asked if I punched Corey back, and I responded, no, I didn't. And she told me that I needed to go back over there and punch him in the nose. And until I did so, I would not be allowed back in the house. You can't blame my mother's reaction to so much when you consider that many parents would have reacted the same way. We tell our children that the only way to earn someone's respect is through violence, by teaching them a lesson. And my mother grew up hearing these messages through her family. Her youth was spent in the tough copper mining town of Butte, Montana, where a crooked nose was a badge of honor, a medal from a righteous fisticuffs at the old M&M bar on St. Patty's Day. It signified grit and the type of noble resilience that can carry you through a whiskey-fueled afternoon discussion to its natural conclusion, which, at least in Butte, may include a tissue shoved up an oatmeal nostril. My ancestors traveled from Italy to work the mines in the richest hill in the world. They were tough, not ones to be messed with. And when a fellow union brother started to get too cozy with the company, it was my grandfather's job to bring him back in the fold. My mother shared their blood, and although diluted, their blood still pumps through me. I can imagine what my mother was thinking as she stood in front of her sobbing son that summer day so many years ago. She was probably thinking, what would my dad do? So I went back to Corey's house. He stood on the other side of a closed screen door and served as a barrier between us. I told him to come outside because my mom said I had to punch him in the nose. He said he couldn't because his mom told him that he couldn't fight. So it was a standoff. He couldn't fight because he would have gotten grounded. I couldn't go home until I fought him. Eventually, we decided that the best course of action would be to gather up our matchbox cars and head to the local sandbox. I admit that I have given similar advice to my own sons while they were growing up. It's an incredible amount of pressure we put on young men when we suggest that instead of crying, a real man should settle things with his fists. You can imagine how this socialization can manifest in a young mind that doesn't know how else to deal with life's challenges. Our storyteller today is Aaron Asher. When I first heard Aaron's story recorded during last summer's Man Up event, I was brought back to that day with Corey. Aaron's story about having to deal with a bully during his teen years really speaks to that socialization we're all taught. And I considered my own similar experiences growing up, and there were many. I realized that most of his boys have probably felt the exact same way as Aaron did that day that he decided to confront his tormentor. And that's the beauty of storytelling. When we share our stories, we allow others to connect with us. And this is scientifically proven. Neuroscientist Yuri Hassan studied how brains work while telling and listening to stories. Through MRIs, he found that when a person is listening and comprehending, their brain activity begins to sync 
with the brain of the teller. This is Men Speak, a show that aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with a goal of eliminating gender-based violence. Aaron Asher spoke at our Man Up event hosted by Rose Curtis with Tales at the Tap. Aaron was born and raised in Sheridan, Wyoming. He is now pursuing a master's in mental health counseling from the University of Wyoming School of Counseling, Leadership, Advocacy, and Design. Aaron is currently interning with the Safe Men program, which focuses on male advocacy in the prevention of gender-based violence, and is also interning with both the Wellspring Counseling Clinic and the University Counseling Center. Outside of school, he enjoys playing guitar, riding his mountain bike, and eating good food. Good evening, everybody. Um, man up. I have a story to tell. Okay. Um, I want to take us back to 1999 in Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, I was a ninth grader, and um, my relationship to um, the idea of manning up um, when I was asked to do this this um, this moment in time stuck out to me just like a, a pinprick on my skin, basically. Um, and I want to actually back up a couple years prior when, um, when I was 13 years old. And I started a band. Um, I'd been playing guitar, and I really was finding my identity as a cool dude in school <laughs> through the guitar. Um, I was um, playing with... Charlie Fordyce on drums, um, who I had been friends with through three-on-three -three basketball, and I ended up being a lot better at guitar than basketball. Um, um, a couple other friends of ours also, um, just was sort of how we identified ourselves, how we um, kind of moved through the world and who we wanted to become. And Charlie, um, I remember during the basketball days, his dad um, called him out of the room one time and was screaming at him and um, calling him a little crybaby after he started um, uh, losing it a little bit. Um, I remember Drew Gillette, our bass player. His dad was never in the picture. Um, and I remember Jackson, um, the keyboard player, and myself with um, very different um, family backgrounds. And so maybe it was no surprise that Charlie, um, my best friend at the time, the drummer, um, started to gravitate towards other people who were a little bit more hard, where I was a little bit more soft. And um, there was one particular person who kind of pre presented themselves. Um, we'll, fa we'll fast forward back to 1999. Uh, our band had dissolved. Uh, Drew had found a better home, better fit, um, with a metal band and some older high schoolers. So he was out of the picture, which meant no more band for us. And Charlie had kind of quit playing drums, and he instead started punching people in the face in parking lots. And nobody was a bigger fan of this than his new friend, Justin, Justin Black. And 
Um, Justin perceived me as a threat right away. Um, I think, you know, it had a lot to do with probably which end of town we grew up on. Um, I think it had to do with the fact that just he thought things were funny that I didn't. Um, and when he was able to latch on to the fact that um, he learned that I was Jewish, that was it. That was all he needed. And so he could ride the throttle every time just to antagonize me just enough before other people could really call him out on being an asshole. And um, I put up with this for maybe six months, maybe longer. And uh, eventually the antagonizing was wearing me very thin. Um, no more band, a lot more drinking, a lot more weed, lots more um, junior high uh, shenanigans. Um, and I was not hanging out with people who had my back, that's for sure. Um, so I decided one evening that I was, I had had enough and I was going to call Justin out, but I couldn't do this before kind of stealing myself up for, uh, this confrontation. So we were at Drew, the bass player's house. We were drinking beers. I'm doing clap push-ups in the lawn, just trying to impress a bunch of dudes for how much ass I'm going to kick because I'm such a badass. <laughs> if you didn't already know. Um, and slamming beers, because that's what any good fighter does before a fight. Um, and so now I'm, I'm officially pumped up, and I'm walking across town over to Justin's neighborhood. It's a neighborhood I'd never been to before. So I'm walking along, and with every detail that I've never seen, um, every sort of um, factor of out that I'm out of my element, that's really starting to permeate my confidence level of what I'm about to do. So I knock on this trailer door, uh, Justin's mom answers, and I'm trying to find the right tone between like, hi, is Justin here? And hi, I'm here to beat your son up, or at least try. <laughs> and so Justin does come out, and uh, it starts to hit me that one, this guy has probably been beaten a lot more than I have. He's taken a lot more beatings. And um, he's going to destroy me. I think that was the other thing that was really very prominent in that moment in time that was running through my mind. But also, the other part that was just as loud to me was that I still didn't understand like why it had to be like this. Why did we have to be at odds for somebody that could have been a mutual friend. Why does he have to find this little um, detail to just pick away at me? And um, it was a long time later that I realized that a much more appropriate way of manning up was just setting boundaries, just saying, I'm not going to put up with you guys if this is how you want to treat me. I didn't do that. I just started to cry instead. Um, it's the opposite of manning up. Um, and so this is the most anticlimactic moment where now Justin, and maybe rightfully so, is like, you come to my house to start this with me? And now what the hell are you trying to do? So it, trying to salvage a perfectly good evening, my friends invite Justin back to Drew's house. So Justin comes with us, and I basically just fell asleep to the sound of them making fun of me uh, that night. And I, I guess I picked a weird time to like tell this story 
Uh, I told it to my brother earlier today. He's like, I never knew that happened to you. It's like, well, because I didn't tell anybody about this ever. So I guess I could have either saved this for therapy or I could have told it in front of a bunch of people. So here we are. Um, so the moral of this story, um, it was a terrible time. I wish I had stuck up for myself in a, in a more uh, appropriate way. Um, and I'm still not really a devout Jew by any stretch of the imagination. It has a lot more to do with my family and cultural heritage. It's just a hel it's holidays that we celebrate more than anything and connecting us to our larger family. And so now I share that with my uh, new niece. I still continue to enjoy that with my parents. Um, singing with them every year is one of the most fun and cherished things that I get to do with my family. And no kids who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, who I don't really blame or harbor any judgment for now, and while they had to go through, those people don't get to take that away from me. Thank you. Now, we're joined by co-host, producer, and Wyoming journalist Cooper McKim for a conversation with Aaron Asher. Well, how did that feel? Well, I, I haven't seen that for close to a year now. Um, I feel sorry for that guy, honestly, just having to go through that experience. Um, I mean, I say that simply just because I remember feeling like there were just so little options, I suppose, at my disposal. Um, and I didn't really know how else to deal with that situation or how to shoulder that um, through anyone, you know, beyond myself at that time. Hmm. Yeah. One thing I really like about your story is I think any young person growing up can, can empathize with the situation that, that you went through, at least feeling like you said, not having any other options other than to act out through violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, that I enjoyed your story because I could think of like half a dozen other situations that, that I've experienced that, that were very similar. It's, it's tough growing up. Right. And it's, and it's, it's tough making, making those decisions on how do I treat the situation? How do I stand up for myself? How do I stand up for my, my faith? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that your story is very easy to connect with, with a lot of people. I have a question for you though. How do you, mm -hmm. how did you feel? You said close to the end of your story that it was the first time that you had shared this mm -hmm. and you were sharing it with a hundred people. Uh, yeah. I want to know how you felt at the time uh, standing in front of all those people sharing this story. I remember a couple weeks prior, I had um, just had a very brief conversation with uh, one of the organizers, and she was helping me kind of think about some of the details of that story to make it perhaps a little more entertaining or easier to follow. And I it wasn't a very pleasant experience just trying to revisit that and orchestrate it, orchestrate that. And I spent a lot of time sort of um, coming up with other things to do other than kind of confronting some of those feelings around that. 
Um, and it wasn't until the day of that story that I was doing some odd jobs for somebody and just working on their property. And I had all day to just kind of be by myself and, and um, really give that um, a hard think about that. And I'm glad that in some ways I, I just sort of did it in this sort of uh, one day of just kind of getting all of that intensity um, organized and then just getting it out of my system. Um, some I was nervous for sure, but something kind of took over, I suppose, that was in a sense bigger than that nervousness. And it was just like, there is a story here that I really want to tell for, some, I, I suppose, the same reasons that you mentioned, that there's some universal links there in terms of um, not knowing how to react to that situation other than trying to assert aggressiveness and dominance and, you know, some of those things that um, would distinguish me as you don't want to mess with me, we kind of, um, and I wasn't, I hadn't, ha I didn't have any idea how to do that, honestly, at the time. Did you, was that a turning point for you at all in how you dealt with situations? Um, it, wasn't. Yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a very much a defeat at really? the time. Yeah. Huh. Um, well, okay. I, I suppose the moment of, re, you know, retelling, that was a turning point. So maybe, I'm sorry, that's probably what you were asking. And No, no, I was actually thinking, yeah, like when you confronted Justin. Okay, uh, that was not a turning point. Um, that was very much more, yeah, a, a feeling of defeat. And also, um, I think feeling even more hemmed in at the time in terms of, I don't know how to reconcile these feelings um, with, um, you know, who I am as a person, things that I cannot alter, that I cannot change about myself. Hmm. Had you, had you analyzed that story before or was it sort of in the annals of your subconscious? Oh, pushed it way down. Yeah. It was in a dark <laughs> locker somewhere. Were yeah, you embarrassed about it? Did you feel shame? I was about deeply it? embarrassed about it hmm. mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, However, it's interesting that, you know, all of these prompts uh, from the Tales of the Campfire, Tales of the Tap House initiative, they're so simple, right? They're just these two word things, um, and yet they conjure up something really powerful in people that way. Um, so it was a nanosecond in terms of man up and what story might that, you know, present for me. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bob, we were... Bob and I were talking a little bit about how important vulnerability is within health, healthy masculinity. And that's one of the reasons I felt like your story should be, should be first is because I think it was, um, so vulnerable. Yeah. What, what were your thoughts on that? So the beauty of storytelling is when, uh, especially as a catalyst for social change or for uh, culture change, uh, which is what we're aiming for. Um, is that when you, you're standing in front of all these people and you're vulnerable like that, um, you give permission for other people to be vulnerable as well. And it gives them courage to share their own stories. And whether that is at another event later on, or maybe it's just when they're home talking with their families, um, sharing stories uh, about their own experiences. And trust me, after one of these events, people are talking afterwards 
and men are men are opening up. So it's incredible, incredibly important um, to be able to share those experiences so that we know that we're not alone. Yeah, what kind of response did you get from folks after? I remember um, one lady came up to me afterwards and said that there was so much overlap in terms of her experience going through high school, um, being from a minority background, and how that was weaponized against her as well. And I'm sure there was some catharsis there. At least that was my impression. So I totally echo what Bob just said that way in terms of how easy it is to um, connect and want to share once there's been a, um, a good reason to do that. And I think the, that event, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, how much openness there, there is at, um, at a tales event that way. Um, and how important it is for every speaker just to have that opportunity to share that story, how much healing can come from that alone. Has, did the story bring you catharsis afterwards? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was, um, it was a huge weight. I felt like that had been taken off my shoulders, uh, by being able to confront something that was deeply unpleasant about my past, um, from a time of a lot of insecurity and yeah, turn a corner with it. Just feel differently about it. Um, specifically differently, I suppose, because, um, I wasn't going to give power away. I wasn't going to let someone else claim ownership through ignorance. Yeah. What what other themes or or lessons are there for people to think about Bob within the realm of healthy masculinity from Aaron's story? Yeah, so one one thing and and Aaron's already addressed it a little bit. It's about power and control. I mean, we're taught from a young age that um, to be a real man, <clears throat> uh, we have to have power and control over all aspects of our lives. And so one of the themes that I, I saw was um, Aaron trying to figure out what to do about the situation. And he, he resorted to, just like any other kid his age would have, I'm going to go kick some ass. Uh, that way I can get back that power and control and I can have power and control over this other person and he knows not to mess with me. We don't get a lot of options as young boys uh, outside of that realm. I mean, the messages that we get about showing emotion, for instance, it's incredible that uh, we're not allowed to cry yet. Uh, we're allowed to show anger. Mm -hmm. So, for whatever reason, it's in our culture that throwing ourselves down on the ground and throwing a fit is okay. Punching holes in walls is okay. Mm. But to have that emotion come out in any other form is not manly enough. Um, so that's another thing that I saw is trying to understand what emotions you're allowed to have as a young person. And the fact that you needed to take action. What other options are there for a young person? Mm -hmm. I really like that it, that it was so solutions oriented, even for you to tell that story. 
Like, I think it was healing for people to hear it and to open up. It was the second storyteller, but still in the early on in the, in the night, having a story where somebody wasn't bragging. It wasn't an opportunity to get up there and, you know, be arrogant. It was, it was self-reflective in a way that, that felt very important. Yeah. How did your relationship with those, that group of friends, uh, go after that incident? Well, I think they, at least a couple of them, um, this group of friends, I'm sure lost respect for me after that night to varying degrees. Maybe some people, it didn't move them very much. Maybe others, it moved them a lot more because it was so deeply out of character of the behavior that they expected and that they uh, thought was warranted in that situation. So that was sort of the, in a sense, I guess the, the bad news. The good news, I think I did discover, uh, maybe this experience helped me to discover that, was that these relationships weren't really meant to last, uh, in some <laughs> cases, anyway. Um, and that uh, I'm thinking of my friend Drew specifically, who this was neither his finest hour nor mine. I'm glad that we've both matured a bit since then and that there's there's something there that is meaningful enough to both of us that that endured through our immaturity uh in Mm. moments like that so so another thing that uh i found interesting about your story is Mm. how aware you were of the experiences that these other boys were 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 having you come from a good family Mm -hmm. and these young boys didn't necessarily come from that but yet you were able to identify that and uh and know that that plays a role in in the situation. Yes, I do think about that aspect a lot. And I why I wanted to focus on that in this story and make that part really explicit is that the experience of being a young boy with some of those expectations also meant that in some ways I didn't value uh, that loving home as much as I should have at the time. Um, that some of the qualities that now uh, I do deem really valuable and healthy that were displayed in my home, I probably did see as weakness at time. I'm think at times I'm thinking of my dad, um, who wasn't like these uh, fathers that I had described in the story, and somehow feeling like maybe he wasn't masculine enough um, as a role model for me in some ways at the time, that there wasn't enough of what I, my expectations of what masculinity was supposed to be. Um, And so it's only through, I think, looking back on that, that I can kind of see the error of my ways. Um, And I really wanted to hopefully highlight that a little bit in this, in this story. Also to extend some empathy, hopefully, to the fact that a lot of these behaviors as ugly as they are, they are certainly learned. They don't just come out of thin air. So um, you're a safe man. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, Safe Man is a uh, program through Albany County Safe Project. And 
Um, it's co-sponsored by the Wyoming Coalition. <clears throat> we have 10 men a year uh, commit to learning about the basics of gender-based violence and healthy masculinity. And during that year, it's their project to come up with their own way of giving back, uh, either providing prevention efforts or, um, or awareness efforts <clears throat> to uh, the, the issues of healthy masculinity and um, gender-based violence. And it's a great program because every year we replace those 10 with another 10. So instead of 10 programs, we got 20. Next year we have 30, that sort of thing. And we've had 37 men graduate the program up to this point. And I'm, I'm taking us down this route because you're, you're talking about some uh, pretty deep, heavy understanding as far as what healthy masculinity is and these rules and these laws, uh, these, uh, mm -hmm. these tools that we don't learn growing up and we don't necessarily have an opportunity to learn until um, we're adults. Or maybe we never get that opportunity. So I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience as a safe man. Uh, a little bit why you chose to go through the program, maybe some of the things that uh, stuck with you the most, and also if you could talk about your, your project a little bit. Sure. Um, it'd be appreciated. Thanks, Aaron. Sure. Well, the first thing I want to respond to is that I'm, I want to use this story real quick as just an example of how a seed could have been planted in an experience like that for ill. And if had I not had... A supportive family had I not had um, opportunities to shape my experience of what healthy ma masculinity can look like um, through family friends through mentors later on in education etc that this could have been a, a really dark turning point for me possibly or other stories that we hear at events like this um, and so I think there are moments like that that can maybe hang in the balance to where that might have shaped me in such a way that I could have been contributing to the same problems that the Safe Men um, organization is trying to minimize and mitigate. Um, and so, again, I think this is a beautiful opportunity that's placed in our community. And that's, the, I guess, the first thing that sticks out to me is that the those expectations the, the man box, one thing that we did learn in Safe Men that really did stick out to me that I think is applicable, and that's uh, Tony Porter, who's, who's a uh, brilliant speaker and great way to conceptualize the restrictions um, in terms of what is and what is not socially acceptable for young men. That's something that I think a lot of us have skin in the game with. Um, that was certainly an area that really connected with me uh, through part of um, that year of learning. I think... You know, there are a lot of people like me in in towns like this, that small towns that have might have been affected one way or the other. Um, we see a lot of uh, social ills happening in in big ways and small ways, and it's it's difficult to take some of that knowledge and then use it in a way that can be um, effective towards some type of change. Um, so my idea as far as what I ultimately decided on to try to address, um, this social ill is just to hopefully give more men an opportunity 
to speak in a therapeutic setting uh, to tell more stories like this. Um, so myself and Tedder Easton, um, who is a counselor at the University Counseling Center, uh, we developed a program for college students uh, at the University of Wyoming, men specifically, to have a space to talk about men's issues, uh, including gender roles and expectations, dating, sexuality, healthy and not so healthy masculinity, etc. So that's that's sort of the direction my project took. Well, it's a great direction too. Um, all these young men uh, coming to Laramie, most of them from in state, all across Wyoming, coming to Laramie to go to college, and and we we take for granted uh, how easy it is to uh, acclimate to that um, to to that environment, and we don't take the time to consider, boy, what is the proper way to to ask a girl out? You know, mm-hmm. what, what when is annoyance? Across uh, a line to stalking, um, and and these sorts of things that we would expect any of our kids to understand, well, they simply don't. Um, at least not on the level that that they need to. So, uh, I've always been appreciative of your program, and uh, and I'm a big fan of uh, what you've done as a safe man too. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, if I may, that sparks another um, point I, th- I find really interesting in terms of dating and just trying to navigate um, competently in that world of romance, um, flirting. And I, oh my gosh, I am not an expert in any of that, uh, (laughs) far from it. But I do, I I really recognize and empathize with um, that that is not getting easier for uh, for, uh, young men in terms of the amount of time um, spent socializing versus time spent in isolation with technology. And there is a lot of advice. We can all go looking for it and we're bound to find it, but what quality you know, is that advice that we might get on those subjects um, related to dating, um, sexuality, masculinity? And I think there's a lot of peril uh, to in, in terms of that sphere. Um, so that is another thing that I take some interest in and some level of research in, and that's what I'm going to be presenting on uh, later at the Safe Men Summit this summer. Great. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so take you back to the summer of 2021, and we were desperately trying to get this event. It was going to be our first event as the Campfire Initiative. It was going to be our coming out party to the community of Laramie and uh, it was going to be a big event for us and we partnered with the wonderful people at Tales of the Tap House who are still our biggest partner in, in this whole endeavor. endeavor. Um, and I just wanted to share a story, a personal story about it. I got sick right before this event and I was unable to um, take part in it. You know how we talk about you know the only thing that's going to keep me away is a coma? Well I was in a coma. <laughs> and uh, about a week or two after the event had happened, um, they started bringing me out of the coma. It was due to COVID. Um, and I was hooked up to a ventilator. I couldn't really talk. I couldn't really communicate. But it was the one thing, this event was the one thing that I was thinking about when I got sick. So it was the thing that I was thinking about during this entire time. And um, 
my wife was able to, uh, on her phone, show me a video of that. This was before I could even talk. I mean, the only, we're talking about emotions. The only emotion that I physically had available to me was crying, which was kind of a weird thing. Uh, but that's how I expressed frustration, anger. I mean, it was the only thing that was working, it seemed like, uh, was my tear ducts. Uh, and, uh, and I used them to, to, uh, to my advantage quite a bit while I was in the ICU. But I remember watching the Man Up event and watching your story in particular and feeling this incredible connection to you and everybody else and this pride with the, the Campfire Initiative and, and how wonderful it, it went off. And I really connected with your story and I kept having Mary play it over and over. And the funny thing about that is that <clears throat> when you're in an induced coma, and I'll, I've talked about this before, it's fentanyl. So you're high as a freaking kite the entire time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And your brain tells you weird things. So I knew that you were a musician and they had this background music playing. Um, and I thought, boy, where did Aaron get a, a horn section? And I started thinking, this is like one of the coolest songs I've ever heard. For like two or three months, I thought you were the biggest secret. <laughs> that you were this incredible. You, you may as well, be, you could very well be an incredible musician. Don't get me wrong. It's just I haven't heard you play. But I was sure that that was you for months until I was on Spotify one day. And this song started playing. I'm like, oh, that's Aaron's song. And I looked up. It wasn't your song. I can't remember who it was. That's it was awesome. Like somebody on, you know, had a million followers or something. But uh, we're gonna have to get to the bottom of who that was. For months, I thought you were the most talented musician that nobody's heard of, and I was gonna change that. I had that video, and I would just make Mary play it. I think I watched it five times, one after the other. I think she was getting tired of holding the phone up like that. But uh, I appreciate you, and I appreciate that role that you played in my recovery, really. Hmm. So, I. I'm blown away uh, <laughs> to hear that, and I, I deeply appreciate that. I really want to express that Safe Men runs on the energy and blood and sweat and tears of people, and um, that experience would absolutely be entirely different if it, you, if it was someone else, if it wasn't you, Bob. So I want you to know that. Well, thank you, and we will certainly have to cut that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but before we start uh, doing bro hugs, yeah, yeah, exactly. Test our own vulnerabilities right here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good place to cut it off. But thanks for joining us, Aaron, and listening back to your story. Cooper, Bob, thank you. Thanks. The Men Speak podcast is a project of the Campfire Initiative. It aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with a goal of eliminating gender-based violence. This project was supported by grant number 2019-CYAX0016, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women.
This has been Men Speak, produced by Cooper McKim and hosted by me, Bob Vines. Thanks for listening.